forgotten my glasses this morning, so hopefully what I've got written down is what I'll say. <laughs> if we could, oh, start again. Um, if we could all turn to Matthew chapter five and eighteen, I have a few scriptures this morning, not too many. Matthew 5 and 18, and Matthew 17 and 20. And if you've got those two, one more, Song of Solomon 2 and 15. waiting for Chichi to get there. First one is Matthew 5 and 18. Okay, we're going to read Matthew 5 and 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be be fulfilled. And then Song of Solomon 2.15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. And Matthew 17 and 20. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. This morning, with the help of the Lord, I want to speak to you about little things that can make a big difference. Brother Miles, if you could open, if you could pray for the word this morning. Little things that can make a big difference. Little things are often insignificant on their own, but when considered in the larger scheme of an event, those little things can make a big difference. A gesture that is not meant to attract attention, yet noticed, a small detail that complements a display. We have heard many times the phrase, it's the little things that matter. At some time or another, we may experience the little things that make a big difference as to whether others are endeared by us or drive us nuts. It's the little things that can make a big difference in either a positive or negative way between disaster or success. At 11.40pm on Sunday the 14th of April 1912, the Royal Mail steamer Titanic struck an iceberg and within three hours sunk to the depths of the ocean taking more than two-thirds of its 2,224 passengers and crew with her. 
To this day, the sinking of the Titanic is considered a large-scale disaster. Up until the wreck of the Titanic was discovered in 1985, it was believed that the demise of the unsinkable luxury liner was the cause of an iceberg and not any weakness in the structure of the ship itself. The US and the UK governments held inquiries immediately after the catastrophe and both concluded that the ship had sunk to the bottom of the ocean intact. However, since the discovery of the wreck in 1985, it was found that the wreck had actually broken in two. This discovery resurfaced questions long buried into the construction of the unsinkable ship. A few years later, salvaging and further investigation using underwater technological equipment took place. At first it was thought that low quality steel may have been the cause of the disaster, but a material scientist from Oregon Health Science University and a, science, and a scientist from the National Institute of Standards and Technology made the case that it wasn't the ship's steel that was weak, but the rivets, the all-important metal pin, pins that held the steel hull plates together. In 1996, the scientists began analysing the properties of the samples recovered from the wreck to determine if the specifications at the time of the construction were met and researching the paperwork documenting the orders for the material used, the ship's blueprints and minutes from the meetings held by the shipping co company's board of directors. They learned that there were three million rivets holding the ship together. Examination of 48 of those rivets that were salvaged from the wreck revealed that they contained a high concentrate of slag. Slag is a leftover once the smelting process or extraction of metal from its ore involving heat and melting takes place. This slag can make metal fracture prone and particularly vulnerable to stresses and can pop off or unzip. It was also discovered that the ship's builders were in the process of building three other large ships at the same time and this had put a, a huge strain on the shipyard. The use of the lower quality of the rivets were not because of cost but because of time pressure. These substandard iron rivets were pounded by hand into the ship's bow and stern, bow and stern, where the large machines where large machines were required to pound in the steel rivets couldn't fit. So where they couldn't get to with the machine that punched the rivets into place, it was all done by hand. The steel rivets were much stronger. The steel rivets that were much stronger were put into more accessible into the more accessible middle of the ship. So they did use the steel rivets, but where they could get the machine. Ironically, the Titanic was designed with safety as a priority. The ship featured a double steel hull and 16 compartments capable of being sealed off from one another in the event of an emergency. The ship was designed to stay afloat with four of these compartments filled with water. When she hit the iceberg, six compartments opened up and she sank in two and a half hours. It was found that the most damaged area of the hull consisted of double rows of the substandard iron rivets. The scientists involved in the research of the wreck came up with the theory that if the rivets had been of a higher quality or steel instead of iron, fewer of the compartments would have flooded. Even if five compartments had flooded, the Titanic would have stayed afloat long enough for most people to have been rescued 
by another passenger ship that was only six hours away. If only four compartments were flooded, she may have just made it to port. The damage sustained would still be significant, however, she would have sank more slowly. The time she, time she spent afloat with the, with the shortage of lifeboats was crucial. The quality of rivets seemed insignificant at the time of her construction, yet it was just a little thing that made a big difference in contributing to the tragic loss of life that night. Our opening scriptures spoke of little things that make a big difference. A jot, a tittle, a little fox, a little faith. And just like the quality of the rivets in the Titanic, they can make a big difference in the outcome of a situation presently and eternally. A jot, or a yod, is the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet and also has the numerical value of the number ten. A yod is the most frequently occurring letter in the scriptures as well as the smallest of all Hebrew letters. It represents a mere dot. It is the atom of the consonants as it is part of every Hebrew letter and therefore every word. A yod is a little letter that makes a big difference. Its numerical value marks completion and order. The base 10 number system is universal is universal just as the yod is part of all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet as a component so it is as part of all the numbers the tiniest of dots that makes a big difference Jesus said that every letter and every word would be fulfilled a tittle is a small distinguishing mark on a letter they are known as glyphs. Glyphs are unique marks that are combined with letters to represent a readable character for the process, for the purpose, sorry, of writing. A glyph includes such thing as a diuretic, which is the dot on a lowercase i or a lowercase j. And accents. Often you'll see a French word with a little flick over one of the vowels. That's an accent. Glyphs include accents that when, pe when applied to different letters change the sound of the letter and therefore can sometimes change the meaning of the word. A diuretic dot, as I've said before, includes accents and they are placed in the tittle's usual position. If you think about where the dots are on the I and the J. Depending on where the diuretic is placed over a letter or under a letter will depend on what sound that letter makes. Tittles not only indicate the sound letters make, but which sound to emphasise in a particular word. To remove or change a tittle could not only change the pronunciation of the word, but it also can change the meaning of the word, as the emphasis on letters would change depending on where it was placed, and these little marks make a big difference. The phrase jot and tittle together indicate a very small detail has received attention. God is aware of every letter and every word that he has spoken and has recorded for every one of us. Every letter, every dot, every accent is not only in the correct place, but it will be fulfilled as he intended it to be. In mankind's attempt to ignore God, we forget that God is a God of detail. He shouts this to us in creation. His design is complicated and intricate in its details, whether it be a tree, a flower, a planet, an animal, and even our bodies. 
Nothing has been overlooked or is placed haphazardly. He knows how many strands each of us has on our heads. When God gives instructions, he doesn't change his mind. There is no variableness, neither shadow or turning with him. His word is forever settled in heaven. When God gives instructions, they are precise in measurement and materials. His engineering feats are without comparison. Noah was not left to his own devices to build a boat. The blueprint was handed to him along with an instruction manual and the materials to obtain. Every detail, every instruction was to be adhered to. There would be no shortcuts. There would be no substitutions. Everything was made with A-grade materials just as instructed. Any deviance from the plans would have been disastrous. Moses was given the blueprint, materi- blueprint, materials and instructions for the tabernacle in the wilderness. Again, God gave specific instructions on each facet of the tabernacle and what it would be made from, starting with the fabric that would form the walls of the outer court to the colours that would be woven into the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. God designed each piece of furniture with its purpose and its place. The pieces were not only designed to be functional, but decorated intricately intricately and specifically as he had instructed. He even designed what the priests would be required to wear when in service unto him. God gave instructions on how the tabernacle was to be packed up and carried when they were traveling and how to set it up when they camped. Nothing was left to the people's imagination. God had taken care of all the details. They just had to follow the instructions thoroughly. Any attempt to deviate from his instruction was meant with judgment. He has given us the plan of salvation and it's been made plain for all to understand. In Acts chapter 2, when, people, when Peter explained to the people that had gathered outside the upper room who Jesus was and what they had unwittingly done to him, they were convicted in their heart. And as the realization hit them, they asked, what shall we do? How can we fix this? And Peter's response to their question, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission, the removal, the forgiveness of sin. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. If he is still calling today, that verse of scripture is for you. That is the plan that God has for salvation. Everything Peter preached that day was laid on a foundation that Jesus himself had laid during his three-year ministry. Peter did not deviate from Jesus' teachings. He did not misunderstand what Jesus meant when he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Peter understood that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter knew which name to use when it came to baptizing. He knew which formula would remove the stain of sin from our lives. Today's widely accepted formula of baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost was changed by religious leaders in the second century with the introduction of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Just as God's instruction for the salvation of Noah and his family was precise and with much detail, and the establishment of Jesus, uh, sorry, the establishment of worship through Moses and the law was precise and with much detail, so too are the instructions for salvation of our souls. Man has taken what is plainly written and changed it to suit the culture and philosophy of the day, making into something that it was not intended to be. They have deviated from the, from the details and the fine print of the one blueprint of salvation. We cannot play around with the dots and the marks, whether they're the tiniest of letters or the smallest of symbols. Little changes can make difference in how a word is pronounced and how a word is pronounced will change the meaning of a word and changing the meaning of the word can change the meaning of a sentence until it no longer looks like what was originally spoken. It becomes a substandard rivet. Everything looks good and it seems to be in order in this life. But we are walking around with wrought iron rivets holding us together when God requires us to be fortified with steel ones that do not succumb to pressure and that will hold us together in Him in eternity and beyond. Jots and tittles, little things that can make a big difference. Matthew 5 and 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or tittle in no wise shall pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Little foxes. Song of Solomon's 2.15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. The instruction is to the husbandman, the one in charge of keeping the vineyard, catch the foxes. Set the traps. Get rid of the foxes that not only eat the fruit, but dig holes and tunnels in the vineyard and loosen the soil under the vines, hindering the growth and the success of the vine, and they injure the vine. Satan is a sly old fox. If I could catch him, I'd put him in a box. Lock the box and throw away the key for all the tricks he's played on me. Little foxes represent subtle sins that work their way into our lives. We are tricked into allowing them into our vineyard. Our heart, in Proverbs 4, sorry, Proverbs 4 and 23, in the Living Translation says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart from the little foxes, the subtle sins. Catch them before they eat away the fruit and dig warrens through the vineyard, damaging your vine little actions that make a difference. The first book of Kings sees Solomon crowned king. The second chapter sees him establishing the kingdom by taking care of some loose ends and the third chapter begins with the wedding. First Kings 3 and 1 And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord, and the wall of Jerusalem round about. It was not unusual for kings to desire alliances with other nations stronger than themselves and cementing the relationship with the marriage. It was the done thing. And it seems that this is what Egypt's desire was, to make an alliance with Israel, as Israel had grown in strength and political power as a nation under King David. Politically, this seemed like a good move. Marrying a foreigner under the Mosaic law was forbidden unless the foreigner became a proselyte. 
The reason for this was to protect Israel and its people from worshipping anything other than God. Making an allowance for one... Making an allowance for marrying one foreigner may not have seemed like a big deal. But the ruining of the vineyard can begin with one fox. Chapter 11 and verse 1, we see that Solomon loved many strange women, beginning with the daughter of Pharaoh. He loved women, women from the Moabites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Zodians, and the Hittites. First Kings 11 and 2 and 13. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon claved to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Over time, these women turned his heart from worshipping the one true living God. The Bible says he was old when his wives turned his heart after their gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord as the heart of David, his father. Over time, one little fox that's not dealt with multiplies into many little foxes, which eat away, his, which eat away your relationship with God. Building warrens under the vineyard, loosening the foundation in which it was planted and destroying the vines in the process. Subtle sins are not clearly visible. One marriage, although quite obvious, as everyone saw her, did not reveal Solomon's heart. It was a political gesture and everyone accepted that. It was, a done, it was the done thing to keep good relations with another nation. It seemed like a sound political move. But what looked good and right on the outside began a process of corruption on the inside. The vineyard is not spoiled or destroyed overnight. The damage that one fox does on its own could possibly be managed, but it's the fact that even subtle sin leads to more sin. Offences can lead to attitudes. Attitudes that we think we've dealt with have their roots in offences. Catch the offences and the attitude would be caught with it. Attitudes can lead to resentment and justification for our actions rather than repentance for our sin. Those things all lead to a root of bitterness that entangles itself around our heart, leading us in a downward spiral, eating away the tender fruit of our vine, choking our love for our brethren, robbing us of our joy, eating away our peace. Our long-suffering with one another becomes non-existent, and our words are harsh and hurtful. Our motivations become selfish and our own needs are placed in the place of priority over the good of others. Our faithfulness is beaten down and we find ourselves in a, pl a place of prayerlessness and church and fellowship with our brethren become a begrudging task. We entertain thoughts of vengeance against those that have hurt us and caused us pain instead of showing mercy and grace and making room for God to deal with the issue. We can no longer control our feelings, our desire, our tongue. These subtle sins, if not, these subtle sins, if entertained long enough and are not caught and put in a box and thrown away, dig, dig, dig deep tunnels into our heart 
damaging our foundation on which we were planting, planted, causing the death of the vine. Mustard seed faith. Matthew 17 and 20. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. There are a variety of mustard seed, but they all have their size in common. Smaller than a grain of rice, they are one to two millimetres in diameter. If I was to hold one up, I don't have one, but if I was to hold one up this morning, you wouldn't see it. Mustard seed faith must be used with nothing doubting. The tiniest amount of faith can make a, dig, a big difference, a big difference, a big difference when used in the absence of doubt. Mustard seed faith reminds me of the woman, the woman, the widow woman, sorry, of 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17, verses 9 to 11. Arise, this is the Lord speaking to Elijah. Arise, get thee to, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he rose and went to Zarephath, and he came to the gate of the city. Behold, the widow woman was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel, that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. We do not read that God had spoken to the woman of Zarephath about her guest. In fact, when we meet her, it doesn't look like she knew Elijah was coming. She was preparing to die. She was gathering sticks to make one last fire so that she could make one last cake split it with her son and then wait to die. When Elijah asked her for a little water, she did not hesitate to go and get it for him. This was in her power to do so. She knew where there was water. This was not a hard thing for her. She did not offer Elijah anything to eat, although she was about to bake a cake. She was not expecting him to ask for food. The cake was for her and her son. And then it happened. He asked for cake. Cannot imagine what went through her mind at that moment of time. The sinking feeling that he had asked something of her that she couldn't supply. She did not have cake for him. She was about to bake one last cake for her son with the ingredients that she had left and then they were going to die. She did not go and bake the cake, her faith soaring today was her lucky day. The prophet had asked her to feed him. She had not turned to go and bake the cake like she had turned to go and get the water. She simply explained her situation to him, hoping he would have pity on her and her son. Verses 13 and 14. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said. But make me therefore a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Perhaps it was at that very moment that she felt assurance from the Lord, God of Israel. Up until this point, we have no indication that God had, indi 
had communicated with her in, in regards to the purpose of Elijah's visit. She did not question. She didn't doubt. But with the promise from the prophet, she went and did according to what Elijah asked of her. She was weak in her physical body and she only had a little faith. But she invested it wholeheartedly in a promise from the man of God. Verse 15 tells us that she and, and he and her house ate for many days. Verse 16, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. A little faith made a big difference. Her obedience to feed the prophet was a, de- a direct response of her complete faith in God. We think we need copious amounts of faith to do exploits, but all that is required is that we plant the tiniest amount with nothing doubting and hold on to a promise and speak to mountains. Be thou removed. I have a promise from God. Mustard seed faith enables us to look through the mountain that obstructs our view of the fulfilled promise. Too many times our eyes are focused on what we can see, the situation, the circumstances, the looming problem that's so big it can't be climbed, it can't be circumvented, And we just don't see how we're going to get through. We've all been given a measure of faith. It may only be little, but planted and watered and cultivated, it will produce faith if we faint and doubt not. The promises of God are yea and amen. Mustard seed faith is like steel rivets that hold us together. The mountain doesn't phase us. The iceberg will not sink us. Sure, we may, some, we may sustain some damage, but we will not come undone in tribulation or persecution. We have promises on this earth and a hope beyond it. Mustard seed faith sees beyond the right now and into eternity. There's no room in a mustard seed for doubt. Doubt corrupts the seed. Take hold of what we know of God. He is not a man that he should lie, neither human that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not do it? Does he promise and not fulfill? Mustard seed faith, that little faith that makes a big difference, hears the word of God and acts in obedience to it, not doubting the finer details and if they can be so. But trusting God and his word, his plan, his promises. He promised every detail would be fulfilled, every word, every jot, every tittle. Ready or not, it will happen. Sister Zinka, if you'd come. That little faith makes a, di- a big difference when recognizing that little foxes have crept into the vineyard by the damage, the fruit, by the damage to the fruit. The mustard seed faith causes one to come to a place of repentance where the fox and where the foxes are captured and removed from the vineyard and the husbandman comes in to repair and to restore. Little things that make a big difference. A little sin is enough to blemish the garment of righteousness. A little spot, a little wrinkle. A few iron rivets here and there are enough to make the difference between disaster or success. A little faith with no doubt can make a big difference because it has the power to remove the blemishes, to remove the foxes, It gives us the ability to trust the word 
and the one who wrote it. And it enables us to use the promises to remove the obstacles that would seek to destroy us. That little faith makes a difference as it alone can remove the wrought iron rivets and fortify us with rows of steel rivets, ensuring our success to reach our destination. I want to open the altars this morning. I want to invite you to a place of prayer. Little things matter and they can make a big difference. One small step towards God will make the biggest difference in your life. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Little things, little details. The insignificant things mean a whole lot to God. If you are in this place this morning, you are in this place this morning because God wants you to succeed in living for him. He is preparing a place for you at his table and in his mansion. But it's up to you to get rid of those little things that keep you from him and replace them with little things that will draw you to him. It's the little things that matter this morning. It's the little things that make a big difference. If we would stand...